Welcome to Pass the Mic. In this episode, child and youth care students and grads share their experiences and insights about mental illness. They talk about the complexities of mental illness in their personal lives and how it is an asset in their child and youth care practice. Okay, so let's talk about terminology. Yeah. Terminology. Um, yeah, I think we just wanted to kind of set the stage in that when we're talking about our mental health, we're not talking about... Um, just mental illness mental health encompasses a lot of things and like everybody has mental health just like everybody has physical health um and that when we talk about mental health we're talking about more um of like a person as a whole in their mental health but then when we talk about mental illness we are moving into aspects of mental health that really impact us in a not great way or in ways that we don't desire i mean i guess i mean that's not necessarily true i guess because sometimes mental illness is a great thing and we're going to talk about that too but um just that mental illness and mental health are, are a little bit different so that's just kind of how we wanted to open up the conversation just to make that super clear um, so I think it's important what you said, Parker, in the fact that we talk about mental health all the time. Um, there's even like the Bell mental health movement and the Let's Talk movement and all that kind of stuff that's going on today in social media. Um, and I think we're becoming more comfortable with the term and talking about mental health and even mental wellness if we want to go into that terminology um, and I think that's important for everyone to kind of have that balance and to understand that. Um, but when we're talking about this group specifically, we are talking about mental illness. Um, so some of us have been diagnosed, some of us hasn't, haven't. Um, and I think that's important to note that even though you're not diagnosed, it doesn't mean it's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, formal and- diagnosis is a construct. Like that's something that like, I struggle with a lot in terms of having like validity to mental illness is that um, you don't need um, like a, a fancy doctor with a degree to tell you that you have anxiety if you're experiencing symptoms of anxiety and um, diagnosis is really important for a lot of people for a lot of reasons and there's really positive reasons to go through a formal diagnostic process but just because you don't have that doesn't mean that your experience isn't real and that it's not valid Um, and there's a lot of barriers to having a diagnosis Um, and it's it's kind of like an ableist process so um, yeah it's it's uh, very important to me that we're clear that uh, formal diagnosis does not increase the validity of someone's experience hell yeah i agree i think that a lot of people that do go about getting diagnosed live with their conditions for long before you ever get a diagnosis so doesn't like like parker said it it doesn't mean it's less valid before you went and found out like what's going on or put on medications or go to like get help in some other way it's it was there before and it's it's there after so it and if you don't go get diagnosed that's okay too right I remember when I was first diagnosed I was I wondered like did I have depression before I got diagnosed as depressed Am I feeling depressed now that I know I have depression? Am I more anxious knowing that I have been diagnosed with anxiety too? Like, I, I didn't know. It's just sometimes having a diagnosis 
it freaked me out for years and I still struggle with like what it means to be like diagnosed and medicated too like I uh, the whole medication process is just not fun too so sometimes it's exhausting preach man is <laughs> you go through so many different kinds and you just don't know what you feel anymore oh, yeah Amy, I, I went through oh sorry go no ahead. go ahead Oh, okay. I went through time, like, talking about medications. I think that should also be, like, something we talk about because it's huge. And the fact of when you brought up, you're like, I don't know what's real. I don't know what is, what is me anymore. And I think that's something that's so important that I, I went through the same thing of, like, I don't know. Am I feeling this way? I feel nothing sometimes. Like, what did I feel before? And you almost, like, think about what your reality is and you don't even know anymore because you're, like, but I don't feel depressed like I did, but I don't feel happy. And so it's like going through this like roller coaster of emotions pretty much and figuring out, okay, this is a part of who I am. This isn't a part of who I am, but all of it is me. And you want to own that and you want, you want it to be a part of you in some sort, um, whether like for me, it's whether it's good or bad. Um, but it was really hard to kind of figure out, okay, this piece is the depression taking over. This piece is something that, what is Nicole? Um, so that was really hard for me to like actually understand that's incorporated together and not all separate, which is really hard, actually. Something else you said that I really understood or like related to um, was just like when you're diagnosed with something the symptoms change, I think sometimes and that you notice it a lot more. And so it feels like it gets worse. And <clears throat> like, I remember this when I was in eating disorder treatment a lot. Um, some of my behaviors that I was doing like around food or around body checking and things like that. Um, I didn't know I was doing. And then when the staff pointed it out as like, that's disordered. I was like, Oh, I see you all the time now. And it felt like all of a sudden that behavior got worse, but it's just that I was noticing it. And so like the, that's a, a piece too, to think about with diagnosis and how that kind of impacts a person um, is that sometimes it's viewed as like, Oh, well now they got diagnosed. They're acting more depressed, but it's just that like, you're noticing it a lot more. And the kind of metaphor I like to use for that is like, if you've gone to the grocery store, for 10 years and you've gone to the same grocery store and you um you know everything is just kind of whatever and and maybe you you wave to the the uh the people that are there because you kind of know some of the staff or you've seen them and then one day you go to a party and you meet someone and they're like oh hey like I work at that grocery store and you're like oh cool like I go to that grocery store and now you see them every time you go to the grocery store and you notice because now you've seen them in a different context and it's like before it was just kind of part of the scenery and maybe you're friendly with some people but you didn't notice like that specific person and so <clears throat> yeah that's just kind of how I see it when those behaviors feel really loud and it's the same as when you bring up trauma stuff and all of a sudden you're having more flashbacks about that specific trauma like it just brings stuff up it doesn't mean that we're I think we gaslight ourselves with it sometimes thinking that we're creating it now more. Um, but it's just that now we're, we're aware of it. And, that, and that's a positive thing, but it's seen as such a negative thing. I also think too, um, people don't go to receive diagnosis because everything's very hunky-dory, right? Um, normally you hit a breaking point when you're like, I can't take anymore and I don't know what else to do. And you seek that help. 
um, which can really cause there to be, once you receive that diagnosis, um, you do see the amplified behaviors because you are in that heightened state uh, when you originally got that diagnosis. So I think that that's another big thing too, is that people often don't seek help when they don't need help. It's when they're in need and they need someone to um, help them figure out what's going on for them. So oftentimes people that receive that original diagnosis are already past the point of being okay. When you get diagnosed and you get that news, you have to process it. And when you process it, often things kind of get deeper and deeper and deeper and they might come out a little bit more than usual because that's processing, that's thinking about it, that's trying to understand it. And for me, with my with bipolar disorder, like I couldn't figure it out for the life of me because I had everything anyone could ever want in a life and I felt like shit. How does that like, how does that go together? Like it, it can't really hard to like try and understand that and like Nicole was talking about when you kind of have this and you're trying to mess yourself into it and like trying to figure out what's what one of the best things that helped me with that was the movie Inside Out where like joy and sadness touch the ball at the same time together like that's me (laughs) so it was like really like important to like try and process that that feeling outside of like a movie or because I didn't have the movie till years later but (laughs) it would have helped for sure. When I was first diagnosed with borderline personality disorder I went to my therapist and looking at the symptoms and going through the symptoms I realized how big like while I was processing this diagnosis um, I realized how big of a spectrum it really is because you you know, you can get this diagnosis and it can be the same diagnosis as someone that had, you know, murdered an entire family, but it's not you, right? Um, so I think that that's something that's really important to note too, is that even though you experience the symptoms, it's not always in the same intensity as um, some people that struggle really, really poorly with it. It's always going to be on a continuum and it's going to change. And sometimes you're going to be on the lower end of that continuum or sometimes you're going to be on the higher end of that continuum and it really varies depending on the situation when like BPD is something that like because I was diagnosed with it a long time ago and haven't come like close to meeting the criteria for probably close to five years four or five years now Um, and it's such a stigmatized disorder where like if I met a new doctor or like when I meet new professionals, I don't tell them because it's something that I just don't want them having in the back of their mind. And it's unfortunate that that's how I feel like I have to kind of move through the world. And um, it's really hard to talk about now in the space that I'm in just because um, of kind of the professional spaces that I kind of sit in. And it, it feels tough to talk about having BPD because like claiming you don't have BPD anymore is like such a BPD thing to do. So it just feels like such an interesting little balance. And um, like, I didn't think for the longest time that I would ever be okay and um, that it would ever feel any better. And I went through a lot of therapy where it was just a lot of venting and a lot of not doing much actual work because I was working with 
therapists who didn't, um, they weren't equipped for the amount of trauma that I had. And I have a firm belief that borderline personality disorder is, you know, most, if not all of the time, like trauma plus sensitive people, like just highly sensitive individuals plus attachment and trauma and all of those things. And it's seen as this, like you're being manipulative and all the, like, it's, it's just a lot. So it's, it's tough for me when, when I'm in a place of recovery now where like I had a therapist say to me, like, did you know that like, it doesn't have to always be that way. And I don't even know if she completely believed it when she told me that. Um, My therapist has shared a lot with me about um, the ways that I have changed her views on borderline personality disorder and the ways that I've influenced her knowledge of, of it. And yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with this. I just feel like it's so stigmatized that we shouldn't be, like afraid to talk about it and to talk about what our diagnosis is because it can inform a lot of different things. Like if I was in a space like within our field and say I was at work or whatever, I would feel comfortable saying that I had post-traumatic stress disorder, but I wouldn't feel comfortable saying I had borderline personality disorder. And even at my job right now, um, I think like a couple of close friends know that that's something I struggled with in the past. And when people are calling us at work and they are expressing that, um, that they're struggling with things like that, it's kind of cool because I can inform some of the ways that we respond um, and can kind of explain to my coworkers sometimes where that might be coming from. Cause I understand it on a really um, intense level. Um, so yeah, that's my, my spiel about BPD. <laughs> There is a major stigma with BPD and it puts you in a place where, you know, when you want to talk about mental illness and and be like, this is who I am, you have a really hard time doing that. Um, I know for myself, I really struggle with wanting to disclose, which is one of the many things that people with BPD often struggle with. I want to disclose everything. I want you to know my whole life. Like, please come in and let me tell you about this which makes it really hard when the second I do, I'm, I'm judged and it, it takes people by surprise and they, they make a pre-assumption based on the one word BPD, right? And I think that that's a really big struggle is in life, you don't wanna be ashamed of who you are. And when you have a mental illness, it does become a part of you, whether you love it or hate it. Um, sometimes it's both, but you can't necessarily own it the way that you want to when there's such a heavy stigma attached to it. Yeah, I agree. I think that's something that's really hard, especially in this field. Um, I have disclosed to um, supervisors before and they told me that this field isn't for me because of that. Um, And I wouldn't be good in this field because of that. Um, And that's obviously when I was going through some really tough times. Um, And I think that's something that even though um, depression is so much seen these days and we like a lot of people have been diagnosed with it um, and it's, but it's still stigmatized in a professional workplace. You don't want to be working with someone who struggles with a mental illness um, because are they okay? Are they stable? Um, Those are the kinds of things that like, I think other people are thinking about me sometimes. Um, So I think that's something that's a really good point is, like in this field especially we see kiddos with a b and c and all of this and then we go 
and do we use those diagnoses as a way that we look at them and that kind of thing like as child needs care we're told not to um, and I think that's the most CYC thing that we can ever do is with ourselves and with the kids that we work with but also with the people that we work with like our co-workers um, is we're all going through shit we're all doing our own thing we all have trauma we all have a past and I think we should treat mental illness just as so. Um, and it doesn't mean that we can't do a damn good job. Well, and you bring up a good point, Nicole. And like we've talked before about how um, mental illnesses can also double as like superpowers. And so you're talking about mental illness being something that people look down on and think that you're not going to be capable or this field isn't for you. And I mean, I'm just curious for... I mean, everybody in the group or anyone who wants to share of just like maybe something that you think that your mental illness does for you or a way that you can use your mental illness, um, you know, in real, like real life, work life is real life, but um, in like your personal life or in specifically like your CYC practice. I know like I've been on so many different medications that like, I know what it's like to have to take meds every single day and I'm like, I have to take meds for the rest of my life. I'm 30 years old. Like it sucks. It sucks to know that it sucks to have that as reality because I've take, I've went off my meds and then I go to shit. So, or I have a lot of fun and then I go to shit. So it's like a never ending process of like understanding that no matter what, like, I, ha I have to be on these and like for a kid to be 15 or 16 years old and have to take these medications and no one understanding what they mean when they say they make me numb or they make me feel like this or like dude I get it like it's 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 a the worst feeling to sit there and feel numb like I'd rather feel all of these hurt than feel numb feeling numb is terrible. So I think that would be my superpower. So like be able to understand what they, they're going through when they have to, when they, people are shoving meds down their throat and like they don't have a choice. I would say, oh, sorry, I interrupted you. You go ahead. <laughs> I would say that my superpower is actually found in the attachments that I build because I cling to them so, so much. I hold on to every single attachment that I make because it's it's basically an attachment disorder. Um, but the attachments that I make are much stronger, in my opinion, than an average um, attachment that I would make without my BPD playing a role because. I really seek to understand people and seek to um, keep that connection as much as possible while still also equally self-sabotaging at times. But I think that overall, I end up with really well-rounded people in my life and in my corner. And um, that goes for the children and youth that I work with too. I'm, I'm able to connect with them and relate with them a lot more than I believe that I would be able to without this diagnosis. Um, I agree with what Alec was saying about like feeling numb because I grew up like being forced to take medication and I think that's why I'm so afraid to get diagnosed because I don't want to take it. Um, so now I have all of the feelings in the world but I'd rather be crying every day than 
not feeling anything because I think it makes me a really good friend and I'm very understanding and I think it helps people trust me easier because I'm so open and vulnerable even though it's embarrassing sometimes yeah I agree with being numb as well um it's something when you're on medication you feel boring right like you're exciting up uppity life has all of a sudden come to a halt and you don't really understand why things are stable and stability can be one of the most fearful things sometimes when you are used to being around chaos at all times and being stuck in a cycle of chaos um, once you plateau like Anna mentioned earlier um, you feel boring you feel numb you feel like you don't have that personality that everybody once loved and um, it can be really stressful absolutely I think the important distinction too is that um, when those things are happening and, and we're really numbed out by medication, that usually means that you're not on a medication at a dose that's right for you. Um, if it's causing things going on that are, you know, really disruptive um, and that numbness like is really challenging. And I remember going through that a lot of feeling like just so disoriented sometimes. And it was a matter of like medication. And right now, like when I got on the, the dose of medication that I was on, I was in high mental health crisis and got to a very, very challenging point. And then um, my doctor uh, doubled my dose of my medication and within three days I felt like the veil of depression lift off of me and that had been I had been depressed for like a year almost and been in like a big um, like a big depression episode basically um, and it had been about 11 or 12 months and then it just started, it just got better and and it was really cool to to see that happen but um, that meds I just don't want uh, us to have a, a discussion where we think that meds are bad um, because meds are, are super, super good and helpful and productive for a lot of folks. And so meds are very challenging. Going on meds are challenging. Changing meds are challenging. Figuring out the meds that are right for you and that's going to help you with, with whatever's going on and striking that balance. Learning to apply all your coping skills with the medications that you're on. Like it's a big, big, big thing and that's why it's so challenging and so stressful and, and frustrating and why the experience that we have with that is going to be positive because all of those pieces are things that children are dealing with and it's not their choice i agree i think um yeah meds are not a, so much a negative thing but to be 14 or 15 years old and have to take these things it sucks that's that's where it sucks and like yeah and then the other thing is it's it's really freaking hard to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist in this city that is good at their job oh yeah i when i first moved here i think i went to five different psychiatrists that i literally sat in their office for 10 minutes and they're like here you go here's some medication there's such short and, appointments and i've never understood that and all five of them gave me different meds. And I'm like, so I was like, no, nah, I'm not taking nothing. Like, I'm because I was on like lithium before that. I was on, uh, oh my god, I was on like seven different medications within a year before I even moved to Edmonton. And I'm like, I'm not taking nothing because all of those ones made me like tremors. Uh, 
suicidal thoughts. Like these are side effects of these medications. So if you get put on the wrong ones, it it's life threatening in a, in a lot of ways. And yeah. So to walk into an office and sit down for 10 minutes and come up with prescription pad for God knows what. And then like, if it doesn't work, who do you go to? I think the same guy who prescribed you for 10, like saw you for 10 minutes. Like, it, it's ridiculous. I think that's a really challenging part about that process, Alec, is like we, we go on a limb to seek that help um, when we hit that point that we, we need it, right? And then we're bounced around professionals quite often and um, it can be a really big challenge because we're just trying to get to a place that we need to be to feel okay again. Um, but the process is the challenging part about it because you can try, you know, I can't tell you how many different types of um, SNRIs, SSRIs, reuptake inhibitors and everything that we have tried. Um, it just, it's hard. And I think that people sometimes have an issue with taking things seriously when it comes to doctors and professionals, um, just simply because it's easy to say, hey, go out, try this, let me know how it works. If it doesn't work, come back but we're the ones that are going through the deep side effects of those trial and errors, right? Rather than them, they don't understand what that part's like. So the process is definitely a challenge. And we're in our twenties to thirties going through this process. We're not at 14, 15, 16 years old with having people that we see for eight hours a day, maybe, in and out of the home that don't live with us. Like we're the ones driving them to their appointments for this stuff. We're like, there's no consistency in any part of this process for these kids that are going through so much of things that are just unbelievably complicated to comprehend. It really is quite institutional. Like, I think that, like I said before, I think medications can be a very positive thing. Um, and there are, there's a, like a cocktail of medications that most kids I've worked with in care are on. Um, and, and it's kind of the, the same couple of medications that the same doctors like to prescribe. And it's, um, it's like if we were working with all of these kids and supporting them with their trauma and with their attachment stuff and, um, like providing them with the, with the right types of supports, then like those medications, I, f I feel like sometimes we're just trying to sedate them. Like you, you rip them from their families. They're traumatized as all hell. They have gone through things that we can't even conceptualize. Even when we have big, big like mental health things, some things we understand, some things we really can't understand. Um, and, and then we give them sed sedatives basically. And we want them to calm down. Why? Why? I don't want to calm down. I have PTSD. You know how hard it is for me to calm down? And it's just so frustrating that, that we want kids to just like sit still and be okay. And we're willing to just give them whatever it takes to get them to go to bed on time because it's, it's easier for the staff. Like I've had, you know, instead of staff being able to, you know, sit with and comfort and snuggle with and cuddle with a child because of the boundaries that you can't, you can't crawl into a bed with a kid and cuddle with them when you're working in a group home. And maybe that's the kind of attachment stuff they need, but instead you're just increasing their quetiapine dose 
and then you're getting mad at the kids because they are, you know, exhausted in the morning, not getting out of school. I'm like, well, you're sedating them at nighttime. And so I, again, one more reiteration, I don't think meds are bad. And I think that there's other things that we can be doing for young kids, knowing what we know about the impacts of medication changes on our brains and bodies, that we can be advocating for kids to not be so heavily sedated when they're in a state of grief and trauma. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Mic drop to that, Parker. (laughs) I think that's something that's so important. Um, And I think that I've just realized of how important having to go to my own therapist that is actually good um, and how important it is to find someone that you can talk to about this kind of stuff Um, because I've gone to like three or four different ones and they all sucked and none of them like I could get better counseling from a fourth year child news care student than I could from some of these master or psychologists Um, And it's sad because they just seem like they don't give a shit. Um, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on here, but I am. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) So I think that's something that goes hand in hand with medication um, because I have been on medication trial and error for years. um, And I had gone off of it because I thought, hey, I'm feeling better. Um, I'm not getting so depressed all the time. I'm doing things it's the medication that's working. It's not um, (laughs) like it makes sense. Um, So it's not something that it's hard with depression is, oh, I feel better. I can go off it now. That's not how it works all the time. And especially when you're not seeing a mental health professional to process whatever happened or um, the things that I've gone through, or maybe it's family history, um, that kind of thing. I think in short term, it, you know, it sounds great. And if medication works, then it works. But then I also hear a lot of, oh, you're just taking a happy pill because you're depressed. And I think that angers me so much that I want to like punch people in the face of like, okay, like you're happy now because you're taking your happy pills. No, they make me a normal human being. Thank you very much. Um, I just think that's like so important that we need to like pair medication with mental health supports and having those coping mechanisms or positive supports around us um, in order to process a like what we've been through and figuring out those pieces of ourselves and B to figure out what our new life with this diagnosis means. I think it helps like to clear that up. And I have also never said my superpower. So I'm going to go back to that for a second of I used to be a very quiet and timid person and I thought that was bad. And so with depression, when I feel depressed, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want anything to do with others, but to sit there and to be there and working in a group home with some kids that had similar Um, episodes or similar feelings like that that is what I do and I'm good at that because people don't want well I'm not going to say that that's generalizing all people with depression but I don't want people to talk to me and make me better when I'm really down in the gutters Uh, that's not what I want I want you to sit there with me don't talk to me but I still want you there Um, even though I might push you away. I want want to know that you're going to come back. And that's a part of my own attachment stuff too. Um, But knowing that I can be there and I can just sit there and not have to say anything. 
um, and the kids know and they know that it feels right and if they want me to go away I will sit outside the door um, that is something that I've done for a lot of kids that I've worked with is even though they're going through a whole bunch of stuff they don't want to talk about it that's fine we don't have to and I don't think that's something that's like pushed upon enough of how important silence is and how powerful silence can be um, and still being in the presence of someone because I think that's um, underrated for sure. So, I can attend. Nicole is a very skilled child and youth care worker in that way um, and I can personally attest to that because I was in a training with her where I was having a big emotional experience and she was pretending to be my therapist and she and I sat in complete silence for like a half an hour with me just crying and it was one of the most supportive things that she could have done in the moment and it was really cool so Nicole has a lot of really cool skills um with uh you know it's, it was really interesting too I want to make one more comment on medication and then I want to talk about my superpower as well um hold on one second I'm going to write down what I was going to say for the superpower so don't forget it Okay, so hi, pairing mental health treatment with like, so like therapy with medications, we talk about that being a really positive thing. Nicole commented on that. Um, I think all of us can kind of agree that, um, that pairing the two is, is really supportive for a lot of people, if not most people. Um, but we have kids who are in care and children's services will pay for their therapy, pay hundreds of dollars a month for their medications. Literally, like the, I knew a couple of kids where we picked up their prescriptions from the pharmacy and like there was a paperwork issue and they showed me what the bill was and it was like almost $500 for medications for one month for one child. So children's services pays for all of that. They pay for all the therapy with private psychologists who they find that they think will support the kid the best. They're like trauma experts and animal therapists and all these things. And then you work with them and work with them and build up their resiliency. And then maybe children's services is paying for therapy for mom too and dad too and whoever their caregivers are. And then the kids get to go home with their families because everyone's doing well. And all of the medication stops being paid for. All of the private therapy stops being paid for. The family therapy stops being paid for. The parents don't have access to therapy anymore. And the kids go home and we expect them to do all right. And we give them a phone number for somewhere where they can get some nonprofit short-term one-session counseling if they ever need any more help. However... If that kid and that family do not do what Children's Services says that they need to do to get them to go back, that child gets put up for adoption and the parents who adopt them get money every month until that child is 18 years old to care for them and 10 sessions a year of counseling and they'll pay for long-term treatment for some things. Like it's, it's that supports for permanency funding, right? And if you gave all of that money to the parents... And to the families, those kids probably wouldn't need to be in the system in some cases, you know? And, and so it, it's just a really, we talk about the system as being oppressive and it really, really, truly is, is that we're willing to pay for counseling for a kid who's been ripped out of their family's home and put in someone else's home or placed with them for adoption. I think adoption is a wonderful and beautiful and lovely thing. However, the system, the way it is, makes it so that we value supporting them at that point as opposed to value supporting them at a point where they could have an opportunity to go home with their family and do really well. And that's how I feel about that. Um, my superpower um, is 
I like, well, okay. One of them, I have many superpowers, but one of the things that I feel like my mental illness has really supported me with is I am good at connecting with people in crisis. Like when I have had times in, in high, high crisis where I need to connect with somebody very, very quickly to be able to get control of the situation in a way that keeps people safe. I'm good at that. And it's something where I've been in crisis enough in my life that I know what feels good and what sucks when you're in crisis. And um, I can remember specifically one time where I was called, uh, I was working a night shift in a group home and uh, I was called out to go to the Stollery Children's Hospital where they had put a youth in a cab from wherever her placement was and so they said oh you're suicidal we'll put you in a cab and we'll send you down to the stallery and then we'll send a staff who you've never met before to go sit with you all night and so I had to connect with a suicidal teenager who did not want anything to do with me so that we could get something done (laughs) because there needed to be some cooperation with the process at the hospital and so um I, I remember trying to get her to eat something and being like, do you want to have a snack? Like the, at the stallery, they have like a whole little kitchen for families. And I went over and took like one flavor of every single thing of jello they had and like basically dumped them on her bed and was like, okay, so we're going to eat all this jello tonight and you're going to love it. And I'm going to love it. And it, it's just like, I can sometimes be really silly and really outgoing and just like act like a, like a, child um, to connect. And I can also be very firm and directive to be able to maintain some kind. And when I say control, I'm not controlling another person's behavior, but um, maintaining some safety in the situation. And there's just been so many times I can't even, I'm having a hard time articulating it. You're just so wonderful overall. What? You're just so wonderful overall. Like, I feel like I have some pretty good skills. Let's be honest. Like, I'm not going to say that I'm not a good worker. There's been some times and some, like, children that I've worked with where I look back at that relationship and at that situation, and I go, I was such a skilled worker in that context, and I used a lot of good skills, and I really, really did help and support that family, and I don't think I'd be able to say those things if I didn't have my mental illness that I have and it's it's helped me to connect and it's not only helped me just understand but it helps me in high states of crisis and in moments where um like I get assigned to the the kid where nobody else wants to deal with them that's been my my thing is I get the kid who no one wants to work with and I do really well with them I think that's a really good point Parker because like I worked in the school system for eight years before coming in to do my CYC degree. And I worked with as a special needs educational assistant. And that was like something I was always super good at was working with kids that no one else really knew how to work with. And I strongly believe it's because growing up in the school system in Alberta, A, it's, it's shit. And B, like I struggled so much in it with like undiagnosed ADHD and teachers were like, just was like, yeah, you're like one teacher told my mom that was a juvenile delinquent the first day she met me in grade eight. And so like, that was my school experience summed up into everything else. And so when I go into work with kids, like the first thing that like, I think the biggest trait I have is patience. 
and understanding of like knowing what it's like to have people not really believe in you. I think that's what I'm best at is believing in kids and having patience. <laughs> I like you said, believing in them. Sometimes we have times with our mental illness where we don't really believe in ourselves. And I think we know what that's like and that like the workers with mental illness are the first ones who can like jump in and say like, I believe in you and I believe that you can do this because I know how much it sucks. It's really impactful for the children and youth that we work with to know that we're human and that we experience some of the things that we do. Um, obviously, you don't want to overwhelm a child and say, hey, I suffer from this, this, and this, and these are my medications. Like, you don't want to do that. But um, going into specific things, like, you know, if a youth is um, self-harming, like Parker said earlier, you know what that youth needs if you've been through that before. Whether you tell them that or not, that's completely up to a person's directive, but you know how to best support because you've been in those places before and you know how to help them navigate the really challenging times. Um, and that is a superpower in itself because a lot of people struggle with trying to find the right things to say, um, but when you've experienced it and you've had um, very human moments, um, you're able to better navigate situations and help youth get through that as well. Um, that made me think of like, so I, I grew up self-harming quite a bit and I hated when people pointed it out and I was like, I'm not doing this like for a cry for help, like this is helping me get through this. And when people would point it out, I would be so embarrassed and I'd be like, please stop, like I don't want to talk about it. So now if I'm working with a youth or even my friends, if I see it, I don't acknowledge it and maybe that's not always the best sometimes but like I'll try my best to support them in other ways where I don't have to like point out this thing and single it out and be like or make them uncomfortable because I used to always feel like it was my job to like make people feel comfortable with my self-harm because they made me so uncomfortable and I don't ever want to make someone feel like that. Self-disclosure is a really interesting thing and I think it could be a whole other topic in and of itself. Um, I think, yeah, Anna, let's write that down. <laughs> um, self-disclosure, because like I, one of the lessons I got in child and youth care was that self-disclosure is for the youth or for the family. It's not for me. And I only will self-disclose in a minimal way if I firmly believe that it will help the situation and that it will help the child. And one time I was driving a kiddo to therapy. I say kiddo. I think that this youth was like 15 years old or something. And I was driving and like, so I was here and then the youth was over here and I had scars on this arm from self-harming as a youth. And so the youth had seen that and the youth themselves were cutting a lot and it was a concern in in all of the things that they were kind of experiencing and the youth was like um you've cut yourself and I could have been like no I don't do that it's bad and I was just like yeah have you and it opened up a conversation and it was something that just being able to, I didn't explain the whole thing and say, yes, I started cutting when I was this, however many years old and this was going on in my life. I said, yeah, I have. How about you redirect it, but still have that connection point. And so, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, just so much understanding that that's gained from our experiences. I work in foster care and one of my families was having a really hard time um, just with a bunch of stuff that's systemic 
And I decided to bring my puppy out to this family and they were so over the moon blown away. They were like, why are you bringing us your dog? And I was like, well, because I think it's going to help you feel better (laughs) and I want you to smile. So that just brought us onto a completely new level of relationship because I'm allowing them into my life space to see this is my animal. This is my pride and joy. This is who I want you to meet to um, help you with feeling better and co-regulate. Um, And it worked. Those little things, you know, let them know that you're human. Let them know, yeah, I have a life. And um, this is what my life looks like to a certain degree and to whatever you're comfortable with. But allowing them into your life space creates that connection much further down the road with that person or family or youth or whoever you're making a connection with. Mimi, what's your superpower? My superpower would be being able to recognize when the kids or kids or youth they have or even families actually they are they have a brave face on because for so long probably like as long as I remember I have always put on like this this front that everything is fine and like oh yeah I'm I'm a happy go lucky girl and everything is okay but there would always be cracks in my facade like when people would turn around or they're not looking and like the smile would drop or my energy would move somewhere else and I would allow myself to be sad so being in the field I can see when there are kids that are like barely holding on but they are trying to put a brave face on because they're they can't let those emotions show or they don't know how they're not like it's not encouraged in their family or they don't have the emotional regulation to like to show it or it's just not talked about. So like, I, I know exactly what that's like. I know how it feels to keep it inside and I know what it looks like in myself. So I'm able to like recognize it in another child. And I can think of it as like, what would I want someone to say to me when I was feeling like that? And I just will say like, I see you and I want you to know that if there's anything you need to talk about, I am here. That way, like, there's no pressure on them to say, yeah, there's something wrong or anything, but then they know that someone can see their pain and see what they're going through and can relate to it and just share that with that person. I think that's like a very powerful statement of I see you. Um, And I think that's something that our youth and even us don't get enough sometimes. And um, I was telling Parker about this one experience that I had with equine therapy um, and being able to take space in this world. And all I did was push a horse and I burst into tears because I had never had that feeling of having the power to take up space and to move someone else and to be felt and to be heard and seen and all of it Um, and I think that's something that's so powerful that um, even just a simple I see you and I'm here for you whenever you know and it seems very simple and um, I don't think like a lot of people think of it to be honest of it's okay and I'm here for you and I think that's something that um, I always have wanted to hear and I love hearing it when someone's like yeah, I'm here for you. Um, and I think that's something when, when we say we have um, a mental illness that people are like, oh my gosh, I'm here for you. Like, if you ever need to talk, all this kind of thing. I, 
I see that and I know that that's important and people want to be supportive, but it's, there's a difference between, you know, offering and who's actually going to be there um, when you're in those times. So I think that's also the difference of the way that they feel when we say that. Um, and when people actually like reach out, you know that um, they're going to reach out to the people that they kind of know get them for sure. Um, and I think that's something that I have experienced with youth of they wouldn't talk to any other any other worker except for me about certain things um, because I understood it. Um, so I think that's something that's important that we we don't always see um, and it's important. So I really like what you said. Equine therapy is amazing. I will vouch for it at all times. I went this morning to, to I'm working with my psychologist student right now of my 50 minute session, I think I spent probably about 35 of those minutes standing, just standing and not knowing what to do. And my, we're working on needs and getting my needs met and asking for what I need. And those are things I really struggle with in taking up space like that. If like, if I want something from a friend or whatever, I don't usually speak up and I just kind of like deal with it and handle it and, and not really worry about it and that I'm allowed to sometimes ask for something to be modified or for behavior to be modified and it's amazing how just like standing in a field of horses and having one of them walk by me and then I go they don't want to be my friend they don't want to play with me today and and it brings up all of my rejection trauma right like it brings all those things to the surface and then it's so funny because I have these big 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 powerful experiences in equine therapy and some of the kids who I worked with have also been doing some kind of nature or equine or animal type of therapy and it's intense and like I get that I feel that I'm exhausted at the end of the session I was just I wanted to just lay down in the snow and they just wanted to lay there forever I was so tired therapy is exhausting it's also one of my special interests but it's exhausting speaking of therapy it is so exhausting just like trying to find one person to talk to that's an approach or that like gets you and if you see them once like even thinking like oh am I gonna have to pay for it like will my insurance cover it will I be able to afford another session with them am I willing to start another connection with a therapist knowing that there's a chance that I'm not gonna return like am I gonna invest in that relationship because it is a full-blown relationship that you are investing yourself in and that's exactly how the youth see us too because we are like a full-blown relationship and I I can barely well I guess I just recently started going to therapy again but I have gone to so many therapists that I got mad for years and I was like I am not going back I am not I'm not going to pay someone to talk to me or listen to me for an hour because it doesn't feel right I need it, it just, it didn't do it for me because I felt raw afterwards. But now that I'm going back, I, I can see the value, but now I understand when kids don't open up or they're just like, you're another person that's going to come and go in my life because trust me, like if I was in their shoes, I would not open up to me either or to any adults because it's like, screw you, you're, you're getting paid to talk to me. So why should I bother? Well, and they're going to leave anyway. Like yeah, exactly. there's so much turnover in, in care and like one of, I've been with my psychologist for seven years, for just over seven years. And 
my relationship with my psychologist is one of, if not the most important relationship in my life. And I have, you know, I think that my psychologist was one of my first secure attachments. And there's a lot of like therapeutic intimacy that I've learned from her that I've been able to bring into my own practice. And that like intimacy doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's a connection point, right? And um, finding someone who connects with you and really understands you and understands your situation and like is equipped to deal with it right there's I think a lot of wonderful therapists but we say oh these therapists are bad because it's not the right therapist for us and that's something like I work um at 211 and do lots of like you know referrals for people because that's all I do it's my job and uh I will often tell people if you don't like the first counselor you go to that doesn't mean you're not right for therapy it means that that counselor wasn't right for you and to to keep pursuing that because a lot of people come to us on the phone and they're at at that crisis point where they're like okay something has gone really wrong and I need to go to counseling and then they get discouraged because the first counselor they go to maybe isn't the right one for them or doesn't have the skill set or doesn't quite understand or you know looked at them funny whatever right and so it's yeah I don't know and I couldn't one of my it almost feels like one of my criteria for a therapist would be like doesn't want children I don't think I could handle a maternity leave like I I really don't I feel very grateful that my psychologist does not want to like have babies at this point I don't know what her future holds but I'm very grateful that she's never dipped out for children um and just some of those things to think about that we don't even consider in therapy is the reality that um, there's some therapists where you will stop seeing the therapist for however long because they will have a baby. And that's just the trajectory their personal life is going on. And me personally, with my own stuff that I've had to work through, I don't think that I could have started seeing a therapist knowing that they might leave for that reason. Not a bad thing, just not bad, not right for me even more turnover with child and youth care workers, right? Even more for the kids where we're, we're being picky with our therapists now as, you know, really empowered adults and kids don't have a choice a lot of the time and we leave. Just to echo what Parker said, I think um, it's really huge when you find a therapist that works for you. That's something, um, it is one of the most important relationships that you're going to have because it's not only a relationship with someone else, but it's also building that relationship with yourself and retraining your brain to be able to navigate the hardships of life. And I think it takes a really special person to be able to do that. Um, but not all therapists will work for you. So when you do find one that does, hold on as tight as you can for as long as you can, but also recognize that eventually one day it's tough, but the relationship may end at some point. Um, for personal circumstances, uh, external circumstances, whatever it might be, um, which is the hard part about it. And one of the reasons that seeking therapy can be such a challenge at times, because you don't want that to ever end. You want to, you know, continue on. But like Mimi said, it gets expensive. It gets time consuming. It gets frustrating. And that's the hard part about it is that we're spending up words of $200 a session to talk about our feelings for 50 minutes and then be on our way. Sometimes people and most people aren't able to afford that type of therapy. That's, that's an expensive lifestyle choice. Well, and it's the difference between like, I, I've, I have a friend who has just recently started private therapy and, and again, very um, like if you can afford private therapy, there's 
a point of privilege there that we need to acknowledge and that not everybody has the ability to do that. And like therapy is work and it's, it's very active. And like, if you're not doing active work in therapy and you're just sitting there venting, like venting is, is a process, is a way of processing. And of course, like there's narrative therapy, but um, that it w- it's, we need to move past that point of just like therapy is there. So you have someone to talk to. That's not what it is. If you're like truly engaging in therapy is it's a lot of work and a lot of processing and a lot of, you know, staying up doing homework for therapy sometimes and just so much more that goes into it than just sitting there inventing. Talking is, is great. Shouldn't be the only thing you're doing. I agree. That's something that like I have found with my new therapist that I've been seeing for probably like six months now um, is I had been going to like a counselor at McEwen and I tried three different ones there and then I tried at a different place and it was just it was hard because I didn't feel like I was getting anything done. Um, I didn't feel like I was learning anything new. I felt like could be getting better counseling almost as if like they were just there listening to me. Um, So finding that and realizing that it is a lot of work to do, um, to be actively in counseling and to be doing your own like trauma processing or learning coping skills, but it's literally like re, how do I want to say this? Like reconstructing your life in a healthier way. Um, is a lot of what I have been doing of creating new habits or um, trying to journal or doing those types of things that um, that might be beneficial to me just to try them to see if they're going to help. And it is still a lot of trial and error, um, but on the same fact of it might work. And it's not going to harm me if I'm journaling at night or that kind of thing. It might help. Um, So I think that's something that's important to think of. But yeah, to also pay like $200 an hour is breaking the bank for me. Um, So I think that's a part of, yeah, acknowledging our privilege, but also acknowledging that good therapists are worth the money because we are worth it. Um, So if you can afford therapy with like a certain therapist, ask about a sliding scale. So that's something that's really important of when you can afford it. your therapist still wants to be there. And that's something that like working in the field um, and talking to my therapist about it, going through COVID, I'm like, I don't have the money to pay for you anymore. And they said, that's fine. I like, even if we're paying $10 an hour, it's still so important that we keep doing the work that we're doing, being consistent, keeping that relationship that it doesn't matter to me. Um, and that's, that's how I know I have a good therapist and that she actually cares about me. Um, so I think that's important. And another part I wanted to mention was it's hard to open up in therapy because you've been through so many therapists. And I think that's something that we talked about a lot with the kids that we work with, but also to go there and to be ready for therapy is hard because I had gone to other therapists, but maybe I wasn't ready to start processing what actually happened or where like actually talk and say, I have depression. The first time I ever said that I burst out and I cried because it wasn't real until I said it. Um, And that's something that's really hard to even acknowledge of, okay, this is what's going on in my life this is what's happening. This is a part of who I am now. Um, To acknowledge that is a big 
big step. And that was one of the biggest ones for me of, I look at myself differently. It's not just how other people see me. Um, and I think that's an important thing for me is I have a lot of body image and um, what other people think. And that's just a lot of my own stuff. Um, but that was something for me is I see myself differently. I'm a different person because of this. Um, and so I think that was hard to open up and to actually talk about in therapy. Um, it has taken me time and I've still been in therapy for quite a while. And I haven't even touched on some things because I'm not ready for it. And consciously, I'm not ready, but maybe I am unconsciously. And that's why I choose other forms of therapy as equine therapy or SAM play therapy, because I might not be consciously able to process it, but if I can unconsciously do it, I know it helps and it feels better. And I think that's something that we don't talk about a lot. We talk about talk therapy and um, psychotherapy and EMDR and all of those kind of cool therapies. And I think those are so important in understanding um, a lot of different things on a cognitive level. Um, and I don't think we talk about enough of the unconscious um, level of how trauma healing can work and all of that kind of stuff. Also because I'm super passionate about it and it is awesome, um, but also experiencing it from my own perspective and my own history. Um, it's changed my life in the way that I view human beings and myself that I think it's so important to try different parts of therapy because one is not always perfect for everybody and that's something that if it's not working try something else and it's okay to be able to shop around and do what you want because it's your money and you're worth it so yay <laughs> sometimes you really do need something different nicole like there's even times with like youth and kids that we're you know kind of hitting a wall with some of the ways that we're trying to support them but if you just try something different a little bit more dynamic sometimes that helps like it sounds like such a simple thing and especially because we're cyc like we understand activity and the importance of, of those types of things but sometimes other people in the community don't understand and the caseworker doesn't understand and whatever but a turning point for me in my therapy and my mental health journey was when I was standing in a field with a horse instead of, you know, I had gone through Alberta Health Services and had seen counselors for probably upwards of four years between, you know, age, you know, 16, 17. And I think that I met my psychologist when I was 20, so three or four years and was just sitting there talking in therapy and was just doing the venting thing. And I didn't know what it felt like to calm down until I was in a field with horses because they don't really want to come hang out if you're really, you know, high stress and high energy and things like that. But if you can actually calm your body down, they'll walk right over. And it, it was the first time that I had really had that like it's almost like they act as biofeedback. And, and it was the first time I understood what feeling calm felt like because the moment I felt calm was a moment I could connect with the animal. And yeah, it was really neat because I don't think I truly felt or I truly knew what it felt like to, to relax. And, and so that, oh, hello. I have a cat joining me again here. Yeah, I don't know if I, if I knew what that was like truly. And, and it was just a, a new, oh, she's such a sweet little cat. And they're just so helpful. And I'm not, I'm not saying every single person needs or should go to animal. I mean, okay, yeah, I am saying that. Every single person needs animal therapy. But yeah, just trying something different. Just because therapy's not working for you doesn't mean that you're doing it bad. It doesn't mean you're not. It doesn't mean you're the problem. Sometimes you just need something different. I'm tired. I was just going to say I'm exhausted now. Let's go home now. 
<laughs> Me too. <laughs> this has been fun and enriching. Okay, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Thanks for being vulnerable. <laughs>